There's something indescribable that happens when the overhead speaker crackles overhead with code pink. Without a doubt, these are the most heart-wrenching moments that ever happen inside the walls of a hospital. The stakes are high, and every person in the building collectively holds their breath. It's in the air. You can feel it. All the more reason to know neonatal resuscitation better than the back of your hand. Now, this is not an easy task. We're talking about, hopefully, once-in-a-career event that requires expertise, precision, and outstanding team dynamics. Resuscitation of the sick newborn is a halo situation. High acuity, low opportunity for most of us. But there are a few things in medicine more worthwhile knowing. And no better way to learn about this halo situation than in a low-stakes environment like this podcast. Now, just to get things in perspective, thankfully, about 90% of births are uncomplicated, requiring just a quick overall assessment, a clamp and cut of the cord, and placing the baby on mom's chest to keep them warm. Of the remaining 10%, almost all of them just require a little bit of help, maybe some stimulation, a bit of oxygen, pretty much easy stuff. But of the births we manage in the ED, a small percentage will require advanced resuscitation. So this podcast is not for the veteran neonatologist. It's for the community, academic, or rural general EM doc who might be faced with a dying neonate once or twice in their career. So with that in mind, I've invited three expert neonatal resuscitationists, all new to EM cases, Dr. Hilary White, Dr. Jabine Fiaz, and Dr. Emily McNeil. Now they're going to guide us through the AHA neonatal resuscitation algorithm box by box and highlight key strategies, techniques, and equipment, and also some of the major pitfalls in early resuscitation. So welcome, everyone. Let's go through one by one just a little bit about your professional careers, a little background so that our listeners know who they're listening to. So uh, let's start with Dr. White. Dr. White, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? So thank you, Anton. I am indeed a veteran neonatologist. I've practiced newborn intensive care at the Hospital for Sick Children for over three decades, during which time I've had the privilege of providing leadership to the Acute Care Transport Service, a retrieval service that uh, focuses on the zero to 13 year of age population. I have had the opportunity to work most of my career also in the emergency department at the Hospital for Sick Children. And more recently, been involved with teaching paramedics through the Orange organization, which is mostly air, but some critical care land transport as well. And so I've really enjoyed the opportunity over the years to teach and practice with an interprofessional group, RNs, RTs, paramedics, physicians, and a large focus obviously being on just what we're talking about today, which is newborn resuscitation and stabilization. Fantastic. Dr. White. And uh, Dr. Fiaz, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Thank you, Anton. I am a staff at the Hospital for Sick Kids and working in the emergency department. I'm also a PAM simulation staff as well. I'm also the program director for the clinical fellowship at our emergency department. So being in the capacity of uh, SIM staff, we have been improving it in our department level so that we can manage uh, in a way which is safer for these newborns. 
Great. And one of the reasons why I decided to do this podcast in the first place was because I was down at the ASAP conference in Denver this past fall, and I was lucky enough to go to Dr. Emily McNeil's talk on newborn resuscitation and asked her if she'd join us, and she kindly is joining us. So Dr. McNeil, could you tell us a little bit about your background? I would love to. So I did a combined residency in emergency medicine and pediatrics and have been practicing both adult and pediatric emergency medicine for about 15 years now. I went into the combined residency training so that I could enhance pediatric care in general emergency departments and help educate emergency medicine providers on how to take excellent care of children. I currently serve as an associate residency director for the emergency medicine program at Carolinas. And in addition to clinical work, I run a quality safety and outcomes committee that embraces 40 plus emergency departments in our healthcare system and do pediatric care education for emergency medicine providers in our system. So we've got some underachievers here uh, on the on the podcast. <laughs> All right. Now, before we get into a case, a very important consideration for peak learning experience, I highly recommend that you all have the AHA algorithm in front of you to follow while you're listening to the podcast. So let's jump into a case. You're working in a small community hospital on a busy shift when you hear an overhead call, code pink ED bathroom, code pink ED bathroom. You take a big breath You start jogging towards the bathroom along with your uh, nurse colleagues, and you enter the bathroom, you hear a woman screaming, and as you turn the corner, you see the legs of the supine woman sticking out of one of the bathroom stalls with a nurse leaning over her. You ask the nurse what's going on, and she tells you that this woman is crowning, and as far as she was able to gather, she's 31 weeks gestational age. You take a quick look at mom, who's alert and screaming, And you see that she is, in fact, crowning, but you still have time. There's a stretcher in the bathroom now, and it's only a quick trip down the hall to the resuscitation room. So you decide to get her on the stretcher, tell mom not to push, hold baby from being delivered with your hand, and instruct one of the nurses to get the team ready in the resuscitation room for a precipitous delivery. You ask her to call OB, anesthesia, and peds. Before we dive into the details of newborn resuscitation, let's get some general concepts out of the way. Now, in adults, we prioritize high-quality chest compressions over pretty much everything else in cardiac arrest, and it's all about the CABs as opposed to the very old-school ABCs. However, we're talking neonates now, totally different priorities. Dr. White, what are the priorities in the sick newborn, generally speaking? Anton, we're still old-school. We still focus very much on the ABCs of resuscitation in neonatal resuscitation and newborn care and stabilization. And this is largely because, unlike the adult arrest, which is often primarily due to a cardiac problem or dysrhythmia, in newly born infants, we are generally talking about a hypoxic infant that requires ventilation, oxygenation in order to uh, stabilize. Uh, Remember, a newly born baby generally has lungs that are still full of liquid. And so it's really important for us to recruit the lung. And we do that by providing this newly born infant with positive pressure. 
And that may not be positive pressure ventilation. It may be just pressure. And so if the baby is not apneic, we're going to be allowing that baby to self-ventilate, but providing gas, whether it's room air or oxygen, with pressure. And this is a really important point. We, we need to start with an adequate pressure, bearing in mind that this is being delivered via a nasal mask in the first instance. And so we would be starting at a pressure of five minimum. And in fact, depending on the gestation of the baby, we're often teaching now to go up to six to eight centimeters of water. So pressure is where we start. All right. So suffice to say that ventilation of the lungs is the single most important and most effective step. And one nice thing that I've heard in terms of just thinking about this in general is that the goal of resuscitation of the newborn is to get them pink, to get them warm, and to get them sweet. Absolutely. I would even go as far as saying warm, pink, and sweet. In that order. In that order. All right, let's change and it so, around. So warm, pink, and sweet. Correct. And, and I, think, I think, therefore, since you've given us a minute to prepare for this imminent delivery, it's really important to focus on two things. The newly born baby is going to lose heat rapidly particularly if they're a premature baby, less than 32 weeks gestation, as in the case we're presenting today. And so one of the first things you need to do is make sure that you have a heat source. Yes, think about your environmental temperature. If you have control over your environmental temperature, make sure your heat is turned up. We're looking at ideally 25 degrees centigrade. That really is quite unbearably hot for you and me, but essential for the baby. We're also looking at the opportunities provided by having a, a warming mattress or a heat source for that baby. It's really, really important to focus on environmental temperature and a heat source for that baby to maintain its temperature. We obviously are not going to be able to oxygenate appropriately. We're not going to be able to achieve a decent heart rate in the baby. And we are, we are going to have lots of adverse events. Mortalities increased, morbidities increased if we don't keep this baby warm. So let's start with warm, then pink, and then sweet. Thermal mattress is a superb adjunct to resuscitation, particularly for the prematurely born baby. Clearly, it can be used for any newborn, but if you know you're going to be dealing with a baby under that magic 34 weeks gestational age, I would advise you to have some thermal mattresses in your emergency department because these are chemical. You can crack them and they, they last for up to two hours, which gives you an ideal source. The baby goes directly on the thermal mattress on the appropriate side so that you don't get any skin burns. But I, I think that that's really essential, as well as obviously having an appropriate wool hat in play. And as uh, Emily has already mentioned, having either plastic wrap, like it's round wrap or preferably a a good plastic freezer bag that you can put the prematurely born baby still wet, not dried, directly into that bag, and that helps to retain temperature as well. All right. So we've got a few options in terms of warming the baby. One is your warmer, making sure that it's actually regularly looked at. You turn the power on, you turn up the temperature, turn on the wall suction, turn on the oxygen flow of your, your warmer. you got to make sure you have all those things. Um, if you don't have a warmer, or in addition to the warmer, you can use a plastic freezer bag, a thermal mattress, and heated blankets. We're going to get into this later, 
but we might as well mention it now. What is our temperature goal with all these warming devices? So our temperature goal for the new baby is 36.5 to 37.5 degrees centigrade, axillary temperature, skin temperature. Got it. So there's the preparation that you're going to do when you hear the call, and then there's the preparation that happens way before any baby actually arrives in your emergency department. I want to drill a little bit deeper into the preparation of when that baby arrives or when you get that call. Um, I like to divide it into preparing your gear, preparing yourself, and preparing your team. So you need to assign roles, assign the leader, make sure everyone knows what they're doing, and those people will be responsible for the gear that they're going to get. What about preparing yourself? So I know for me that that once in a career or two or three times in a career when that baby's coming, I am sweating, my heart rate is going up, I'm essentially freaking out. So what do I do to try and uh, center myself and really do a good job? The only person who is less excited about a precipitous delivery in the emergency department than the ER physician is the mother who did not dream that this is how her baby was going to come into the world and does not have any trust or, or knowledge of, of who's taking care of her and who's going to take care of her baby. So for no other reason, calming yourself so that the mother and the, the other parent feels confident in what you're doing will both make things easier for the mother and the other parent, as well as instill some confidence in you. Fake it, basically. So actually, I use that specific technique personally, which is to recognize, as Emily's just said, that the only person who feels worse than you do is the mom. So a way of centering myself is to focus on the mom. And so once I've got my team knowing what their roles are, and I know someone is checking the equipment and I've assigned someone to document, which is also really important, I actually focus on telling the mom that we've got this. I like that term, we've got this. We've talked about this before on the podcast. If you have time, you can do just a little bit of box breathing just to calm the nerves, get that parasympathetics going. And then a little bit of self-talk. If you have time going through in your mind, visualizing how this is going to run in the perfect way that it should, and then ending with, I've got this or something like that can definitely make the difference between you kind of crumbling and not knowing where to go to actually taking appropriate action. Absolutely. And also making sure you've called your resources. I mean, knowing that you're not in it alone is a big help. And of course, this is a team sport. I want to talk a little bit more about the gear in particular. Dr. McNeil, how do you prepare your gear? What gear do you need exactly? And what are kind of the priorities in terms of the gear? We have a warmer that stays in our resuscitation bay and in it is a box with everything we need that we check on periodically. If you don't have that, you will never find what you need when you need it. I think that what we lose sight of at times is that the vast majority of cases we're going to encounter are going to be okay. And we want to focus on the simple things that we need to do well as opposed to worrying about the complex things that we rarely would need to do and have a lot of alternatives for. So without question, in our box, we have our airway tools. We also have what we need for drying and the baby. 
We have our appropriate size masks. We have our cord clamp and scissors available. And we have a plastic bag available of food grade plastic Ziploc bag. We also have an umbilical line kit that just sits in that box. And that is it. Let's dive into the AHA neonatal recess algorithm. So the first box asks three questions. One, is this a term gestation? Two, is there good tone? And three, is the baby breathing or crying? In our case, mom is 31 weeks gestational age, the tone is poor, and the baby is neither breathing nor crying. But before we go on to that, let's say the baby is term and has good tone and is crying. This is going to be 90% of your babies. Besides breathing a sigh of relief, Dr. McNeil, what should we do with the baby who's term and is looking good? We should do what humans have been doing since the dawn of time, which is putting the baby on mom keeping the baby warm and actively drying the baby and making sure that they have a good airway position. We're going to get into the details of airway big time a little bit later. That's for the 90% good looking baby. If in our case though, the baby is premature, has poor tone and isn't crying and is apneic, what do we do next? Well, we've touched on this before and I, and I think we can't over discuss it, which is the warming aspect This secretions, if they are excessive, need to be cleared. The baby needs to be dried and stimulated, and you need to measure your heart rate. This is not the time to figure out how you're going to measure the heart rate. We'll discuss that a little bit later on. But the most important thing is to get the baby to a warm place where you can address the airway and assess the vital signs of the child. All right, so let's drill down a bit into each of those things. So again, there's warming the baby, positioning the airway, clearing any secretions, drying the baby, stimulating the baby, and measuring the heart rate. That's it's a pretty long list, but uh, I want to get into each of those to figure out the way that we can do them most effectively and efficiently. So again, we should be avoiding hypothermia at all costs because hypothermia does increase mortality. It increases intraventricular hemorrhage, respiratory complications, hypoglycemia, and late-onset sepsis. So uh, we'll be hammering this... <laughs> many times over the importance of keeping the baby warm. So next, after warming, we have to think about positioning the airway. Here we need to get into some of the anatomical differences between babies and adults that affect the airway. So Dr. Fiaz, what are the anatomical things we need to be aware of that affect how we're going to approach the airway of of this neonate? Yes, as we are hearing from a long time, kids are not young adults. Likewise, neonates uh, have some differences as well. Their tongues are large, tonsils are large, they have a floppy epiglottis, and their occiput is large. So to mitigate all these differences, we should putting a roll under the shoulder that will shift the head to a more neutral position and will align the airway more and make the bagging more easy. But then by doing so, we will be very aware that we should have to avoid overextension. All right. So everything is large. The tongues are large. The tonsils are large. Epiglottis is large. Occiput is large. So you have to address all of these things. Again, in terms of the positioning, you want to roll under the shoulders. Uh, You want to avoid hyperextension because that'll kind of narrow the airway. In terms of that giant tongue, you know, in adults, we do the, the jaw thrust. Is there value in doing a a jaw thrust in neonates to deal with that huge tongue? Absolutely, yeah. 
making sure that the baby's jaw is appropriately thrust forward so that it brings the tongue forward is a big help. Mm. Suffice to say, in this initial stage, jaw thrust for sure to try and get that huge tongue out of the way. And we might be adding an oral or nasal airway in addition to that. Okay, so we've positioned the baby, we've warmed the baby. The next is clearing secretions. Now, there's secretions and there's secretions. <laughs> so, Dr. White, when do we really need to worry about and do something about secretions and how do we actually clear them? This is one of the changes in the most recent NRP algorithm, and that is paying much less attention to secretions. The focus is still on lung recruitment and oxygenation, ventilation. And so generally, we don't automatically suction babies, even if there's been meconium in the Lycor. Our first step is to provide them with oxygen, if required, but positive pressure in every case. And so in a baby requiring resuscitation, we're not talking about the baby who's obviously self-ventilating and does not require um, additional support. But for the baby who clearly does need additional support, either because they're apneic or because they've poor tone, they're not crying, they don't appear to be breathing effectively, that's the baby where rather than focusing on clearing airway, which has been historically what we did, and induced a vagal response in many of these babies and only made the matter worse, we really do focus on getting these babies appropriately recruited. And that means some positive pressure. Okay. Is it fair to say then that meconium or no meconium, it's going to be the same resuscitation techniques unless, of course, there's complete obstruction with meconium? Same technique, exactly. Routine nasopharyngeal and oral suctioning is no longer routine. All right, so we've talked about warming, positioning the airway, clearing secretions. You're going to dry the baby. Next is stimulating the baby to elicit a cry or at least some good breaths. So how do we go about stimulating the baby? We don't always dry the baby. Please remember, this is another change. We've made it very simple in our NRP algorithm. If your baby's under 32 weeks gestation, as is this little one that we're referring to here in, in the case you presented, we're putting that baby straight into the plastic bag, wet. That's what helps to retain the, the baby's temperature. But beyond that, stimulation generally involves flicking the feet or giving a little pressure on the heel. Not aggressive, but being assertive. <laughs> Not aggressive, but being assertive. That's a, a good way to be for emergency physicians out there <laughs> in general. So that's the stimulation piece. Next is measuring the heart rate. Now, this sounds easy, but I can tell you from personal experience that this step might throw you off your game a little bit because palpating and auscultating a tiny little baby for a pulse isn't easy. So Dr. McNeil, let's talk first with the ideal situation. What is the best, easiest, most efficient way to measure the heart rate in a neonate? And, and why is it so important to measure the heart rate in a neonate in the first place? So the heart rate is going to be the most accurate measure of how effective your resuscitation is. You want to know the heart rate as fast as humanly possible. Auscultating is ideal. 
one of the challenges can be in this scenario that the emergency department is not calm at this moment. So a lot of ambient noise and a lot of people talking and communicating can make that challenging. When I was trained how to measure a neonate's heart rate, it was about feeling the pulse in the umbilical stump and tapping it out for the rest of the resuscitation team to hear. This is fraught with a lot of unreliability, especially if it's not something you do very often, you're more likely to tap out your own pulse. So we really need to use the tools that we have available to us that are readily available to do this more accurately, more scientifically. So we're going to auscultate, understanding that in a loud environment, that's very challenging. We're going to place a saturation monitor on the right hand as quickly as possible. And then a three-lead EKG is going to be the most accurate and rapid way to measure a heart rate in a neonate. This is great. So we're going to try and auscultate, knowing that it's kind of unreliable. We're immediately going to put an O2 sat monitor on the right hand, knowing that there might be a delay in getting that sat. And in terms of the most accurate and reliable heart rate measurement, it's the three-lead ECG. And really, the neonatal heart rate is the most sensitive indicator of adequate resuscitation, so of utmost importance. Exactly, Anton. I jump in and say that reflecting on what we've talked about already, that the majority of babies who are bradycardic are bradycardic because they're hypoxic. And so the heart rate gives us a sense of whether or not we are adequately oxygenating this baby. In order to adequately oxygenate, we obviously have to provide the baby with adequate ventilation. And so the heart rate is a really good measure of how successful we are in effective ventilation. And it's one of the reasons why we focus our algorithm now today on 30 seconds of adequate ventilation before we even think about the heart rate. That gives us adequate time, I may add, to get a, a right-hand SAT probe on and, as Emily's already said, get that three-lead ECG on so that we can really be certain of where we're sitting with the baby's heart rate and recognizing that our resuscitation is either being effective or ineffective, and we've got to think about the next step. All right, so let's review box number one here. So first and foremost is warming the baby. Make sure your warmer is turned on and set to the right temperature. If you don't have a warmer, use a plastic freezer bag to put the baby into up to their chest. Position baby's airway, stick a roll under the shoulders and make sure you avoid hyperextension. Do a jaw thrust so that tongue doesn't obstruct the airway. Clear the secretions if needed, and remember that meconium suctioning is no longer recommended unless the meconium is causing a full-on airway obstruction. Dry baby, unless the baby is premature, less than 32 weeks, in which case they go straight into the plastic bag wet. Stimulate the baby by assertively but not aggressively flicking the feet until the baby cries. Get that sat monitor on their right hand immediately and measure the heart rate, ideally with the three-lead ECG, remembering that the heart rate is the most sensitive indicator of adequate resuscitation. All right, so next box in the algorithm asks two questions. One, is the baby apneic or gasping? And two, is the heart rate below 100 beats per minute? If the answer is no to these two questions, then you ask, 
is there labored breathing or persistent cyanosis? So let's cover the sick baby first, the baby who has labored breathing or persistent cyanosis, but their heart rate is over 100. Dr. Fiaz, what do we do with a baby who has persistent cyanosis or labored breathing, but with an adequate heart rate? So with labored breathing or persistent cyanosis and heart rate more than 100, we have to do the repositioning, the airway. We have to clear the airway and apply our jaw thirst, which will make the ventilation adequate. Meanwhile, concomitantly, we should start putting the saturation monitor, which will guide us further in our resuscitation for our saturation monitoring and heart rate monitoring. If needed only, then supplemental oxygen can be provided. And CPAP need to be considered for preterm babies early on as per the recent guidelines. Adequate CPAP, I would add. So historically, we used really low values, four to five centimeters of water. We're now suggesting you never start less than five and probably six to eight centimeters of water, even for the prematurely born baby, is our starting pressure. And so for the baby who's not adequately ventilating and therefore won't adequately oxygenate, we may also, in addition, have to use positive pressure, ventilation. And of course, in this scenario, we are aiming at about 40 breaths per minute, uh, which is a little slower than historically we recommended. But ultimately, the aim is to provide effective ventilation. So we need to use a pressure which will adequately open those airways. You see chest rise. That's your peak inspiratory pressure, while your PEEP, or CPAP, is generally set at somewhere between 6 and 8 centimeters of water. We've talked about the importance of the heart rate and the importance of putting the SAT probe on, but I want to talk a little bit more about oxygenation. What are the oxygenation targets in the newborn? You know, I mean, the one-minute-old, they're fine at an oxygen saturation of 60%, which in an adult would be totally frightening. So what are the actual targets which, of course, we should have plastered onto the warmer so that we don't forget and we can actually follow as we're going along? I think the fact is this is another newly emphasized area of NRP and resuscitation, and that is not expecting the saturations to improve too quickly, but monitoring the heart rate so that you know that you are actually effectively ventilating and oxygenating that baby, remembering that they are going through a transition from fetal circulation to adult circulation. So there's a lot of right-to-left shunting happening here. You're not going to get a saturation of 100% in the first 10 minutes of life. Our goal, our target, is actually to achieve saturations of 90 to 95% in the newborn over the first 10 minutes. So we would expect a saturation of about 65%, given the significance of the right-to-left shunting, Uh, which is happening at various levels, of course, in the newborn, and seeing a gradual rise of saturations over that first five to 10 minutes. And that's partly why the recommendation has been made to assume that babies will be desaturated, less than 90% over that first 10 minutes, and to just use oxygen for uh, resuscitation, particularly in the term baby. Now, 
There's a lot in the new AHA guidelines about oxygenation. In the adult literature, it's now well established that too much supplemental oxygen is bad for almost all critically ill patients who are satting above 90%. Um, so Dr. McNeil, what do the latest 2019 updated AHA guidelines recommend when it comes to oxygen concentration that we should deliver to the neonate? While saturations are very important, if you focus on the number, you will feel unduly pressured internally to increase the oxygen that you're delivering to the patient to get them to an oxygen saturation that you feel more comfortable with. If their heart rate is tolerating it, then the infant's probably tolerating it. So it's sort of like, why shoot for the stars when where you really want to end up is your neighbor's roof? So the data is actually supports this in that giving children high concentrations of oxygen because we worry about getting the saturation up is actually harmful in terms of short-term mortality as well as uh, potentially long-term complication. And that there's no difference in long-term complications when children are just given room air oxygen concentrations. The individual studies have some variability, but the newest guidelines suggest that for term infants greater than 35 weeks gestation, who receive respiratory support of any kind, the initial use of 21% oxygen is reasonable. We know that 100% oxygen should not be used to start resuscitation because it is associated with increased mortality. And in preterm infants, it is also reasonable to begin with a lower percentage oxygen room air to 30% with subsequent increases based on the saturations of the child. So that's all about the oxygenation concentration and the targets of oxygenation. Let's now talk about mask ventilation. And this is something in adults that until recently was actually poorly done and not really recognized as something really, really important. You know, we're always concentrating on the intubation part, but the mask ventilation, it could be just as important, if not more important in terms of if you're doing good mask ventilation, you might be able to avoid intubation in the first place. So let's get into the details of good mask ventilation. How do we do good mask ventilation in the in the newborn, Dr. Fias? Most important thing in bag mask ventilation is adequate size of the mask. It should not be too big or too small, and we should measure it adequately from the bridge of the nose till the chin. And then the second most important is the technique. If you have uh, adequate help available, you should use a two-hand technique with the jaw thrust. That is one person holding the mask with two hands and then providing the jaw thrust uh, along with holding the mask and the other person is bagging. While bagging, the important thing is not to bag too hard. It should be adequate enough to have a good chest rise. One thing in the pre-termers, we can also combine PEEP with the bag mass ventilation as well. I, I would actually say this is probably one of the, if not the most important thing to have a, a good sense of, and that is the appropriate size mask, appropriately fitted with the appropriate pressure so that you've got a good seal. Because obviously, you're giving positive pressure. And if most of your positive pressure is escaping along the side of the nose or under the bottom lip, you're not going to have effective ventilation and indeed oxygenation. So this is probably one of the key reasons that individuals fail 
to effectively mask ventilate the patient. That's a bit about mask ventilation, the sizing. We just covered the baby whose heart rate was over 100, who had some labored breathing or persistent cyanosis. Now let's go over the sicker baby, the neonate who's apneic or gasping and has a heart rate below 100. So this is when positive pressure ventilation is indicated. Again, apnea, gasping, or heart rate below 100 means PPV. So Dr. White, how do we best actually achieve adequate positive pressure ventilation to open up those tiny little lungs? Good question. So first and foremost, we've talked about making sure we have the appropriate size mask and the appropriate fit. Secondly, we need to think about how we're going to deliver that positive pressure. Now, I think this is where the T-piece resuscitator comes into its own because it's a very nice uh, piece of equipment that allows you to provide continuous PEEP or CPAP and at the same time set your pressure so that you have an accurate pressure that you know you're delivering each and every breath. So clearly, we've already mentioned, and I think Jabin said it earlier, you want a positive pressure that allows you to see chest rise, but just adequate chest rise. You don't want to be blowing this baby's lungs apart, which unfortunately does happen, particularly when we're nervous and anxious. And that's partly why the T-piece resuscitator is a very nice tool in newborn resuscitation. If you don't have a Neopuff or similar T-piece resuscitator, then I think you need to think about a flow inflating bag with a pressure manometer attached and keeping a constant eye on that or having somebody watch it for you. Because generally speaking, our peak inspiratory pressure that we're aiming at to get decent chest rise in these babies is somewhere between 18 and 22 centimeters of water. With PEEP, being most important. I did say before, never less than five, and typically somewhere around six to eight centimeters of water. So it would be fairly common for us to use pressures of 20 on five or 20 on six as a starting point, establishing that we see good chest rise. Giving effective ventilation means we have a heart rate which is improving, or we have a baby whose tone is improving, whose color is improving. But in the meantime, making sure that over the first 30 seconds, our focus is really on getting effective ventilation. Good chest rise. And with that, we'll see an improvement in our heart rate and our saturations. Fantastic. So a key concept then is to have continuous positive airway pressures and positive and expiratory pressures good enough to open those tiny little alveoli and recruit the lung. One thing we haven't talked about yet is clamping and cutting the cord. So let's say we're a minute or two into the resuscitation now. I understand that there's a bit of controversy about the timing of clamping and cutting the cord. Dr. McNeil, could you tell us a little bit about this uh, controversy? Delaying clamping and cutting of the cord improves blood transfusion from the placenta to the neonate and has numerous benefits for both the term and the preterm infant. Now, it's really important that we remember that this is not for a depressed apneic infant, but if you have a vigorous infant with good tone, 
it will actually have an improved effect on morbidity to let that transfusion occur. It appears from the literature that the studies of the placental blood flow that the infant will actually receive 80 mLs of blood flow in the first, probably in the first 30 to 60 seconds. After that, the return isn't as great. I've heard of people having delayed cord cutting for very prolonged periods of time. I think what's important for the emergency medicine provider to know is that when we think about a precipitous delivery, we think about getting the baby off of mom, cutting the cord right away, taking them over to the warmer and doing all these things, which is appropriate for the child who is depressed or for the child who is poor tone, the child who is apneic. But for the child who's vigorous, regardless of whether they are 34 weeks or 40 weeks, the best thing to do is to set them on mom. Now, you would think that you would need to have the baby at or below the placenta to have that good blood flow, but there are studies that looked at placental flow with a child on mom's chest and the flow is fairly equal. Put the baby where nature intended that baby to be, which is on mom's chest. Allow that blood transfusion to occur. And what you do is you decrease neonatal anemias, you decrease interventricular hemorrhages in the preterm infants, it actually has a better benefit, which is decreased interventricular hemorrhage, decreased episodes of necrotizing enterocolitis. There is an increase in jaundice, but that is beautifully not the problem of the emergency medicine physician, just something to be aware of that jaundice is increased in children who get a prolonged placental transfusion. So again, 30 to 60 seconds in a vigorous neonate, put them on mom's chest, let that blood flow and then clamp and cut the cord. I couldn't emphasize more how important it is, when possible, to provide the baby with delayed cord clamping. And I would go as far as saying, while NRP allows us to go as low as 30 seconds, somewhere in the 60 to 90 seconds is where we should we should aim. Importantly, with the exception of the mom who's had an abruption, where clearly this is not relevant, we should do our best to leave those babies attached to the placenta while we resuscitate them, whether they're newly born, preterm, or term infants. So really, we should be shooting for around 60 to 90 seconds for clamping the cord. That brings up just one of the practical issues of making sure you set the timer to start at the beginning of your resuscitation, which we didn't mention at the top when we were talking about preparation. We're moving now down our algorithm and we're on to box four. So in this box, it's just a matter of whether or not we've achieved a heart rate of 100 or more after the positive pressure ventilation. So if we're still faced with a baby with a heart rate of less than 100, the next steps are to check for chest movement, to employ ventilation corrective steps. We'll talk about what that is as needed. And intubate or use supraglottic airway as needed. So let's go through these one by one. So first, checking for chest movement. So that's pretty straightforward. Next is ventilation corrective steps. So Dr. White, what are the kind of ventilation corrective steps we're talking about here? So again, we've got a patient with a heart rate that's still less than 100 after a bit of PPV. Yeah. So we've done 30 seconds of what we hope to be effective ventilation, and we are still not seeing effective outcome. This is where we use our mnemonic, Mr. Sopa. So our Mr. really talks about, yet again, the importance of having an appropriate 
sized mask with appropriate fit. In other words, that we don't have a leak. And it's really important to potentially ensure that your mask is reapplied and also reposition of the baby. Jabeen earlier talked about putting a roll under the baby's shoulder. Sometimes that needs to be readjusted. We may need more of a roll or less of a roll. But we really need to get that airway into a neutral position, which we typically refer to in children as the sniffing position. It's just the same in, new, in, in a newly born baby. So you want to reposition the baby and make sure your mask is fitting. So that's your mister. Your so of your mister so pneumonic refers to the need for suctioning. And remember that these babies are indeed obligatory nasal breathers. And so suctioning the nares first and foremost, or perhaps even deep nasopharyngeal suctioning as well as oral suctioning, is of paramount importance once we're not seeing effective ventilation. Next, opening the mouth, because as I said, babies don't remember to open their mouth, even if they're obstructing. Even a baby born with coenal atresia will not open its mouth until you open the mouth for it. And so this would be where you may need an oral airway as an adjunct in your baby that's really obtunded, has low tone, is apneic, and will accept an oral airway. But in any event, all babies need to make sure you've got a, a good open mouth. And then the PA, increasing your pressure. You may start with a pressure of five centimeters of water for PEEP. You may need to go up to six or eight centimeters of water. And your positive inspiratory pressure, you may need to go well above 20, particularly in the term newborn. And it would not be unusual to see a peak inspiratory pressure requirement of somewhere in the region of 30 centimeters of water. Finally, the notion of using an advanced airway. And this is where I would advocate for anyone, unless they really are expert in neonatal intubation, to use a supraglottic airway. This is uh, one of those things that I'd like to say I carry in my back pocket all the time, and that is an appropriate tiny supraglottic airway. Babies of 1.5 kilograms or greater will indeed accept a supraglottic airway. It doesn't get you out of trouble when you're dealing with a baby of six or 700 grams. Hopefully, you emerge docs won't be in that situation, and hopefully, if you are, you do, you'll do fine with positive pressure ventilation. Because quite frankly, most babies can be appropriately ventilated with a mask and an appropriate T-piece. All right. I just want to review that Mr. Sopa mnemonic. That's great. So the Mr. in Mr. Sopa is mask. So reapplying and repositioning the mask. The S is suctioning. You want to suction those nares. O is opening the mouth. And this is when you may consider an oral airway. P is for pressure increase to a good six to eight of PEEP and over 20 of PPV. And A is for advanced airway. And we're going to talk a lot about what that first choice of advanced airway and Dr. White's already given us a hint of what that might be. So we've checked for chest movement. We've done our ventilation corrective steps. Now we need to reassess the heart rate as we move into box five. So after 30 seconds of PPV that moves the chest, we assess the heart rate again. So if we've got a heart rate of over 100, we continue PPV, uh, 40 to 60 breaths per minute until you get spontaneous effort. 
If it's less than 60 beats per minute, we're sweating. We reassess ventilation and correct as needed. We consider an alternative airway. And if there's no improvement, we give 100% O2 and start chest compressions. So let's get into airway management here. First, Dr. McNeil, should our first line go-to airway tool for securing the airway be a supraglottic device like an LMA or an ET tube? I would say based on the literature that has come out in the last two years, it should be a supraglottic airway. There's a couple of reasons for saying this. As emergency medicine physicians, we take a lot of pride in our ability to resuscitate people of any age. That doesn't mean that we're expert at intubating neonates, which can be very problematic. Additionally, you have a an individual with very limited reserve, and thus you have very little time. The way that we educate our residents is there's no such thing as an easy pediatric airway, and this is especially true with neonates. Additionally, it adds stress to an already stressful situation. So what I would say is that now we have data to support the idea that an endotracheal airway is not necessary and that we can fully resuscitate and even transport with an expert transport service neonates that have supraglottic airways. The reality is, is that you have less than 40 seconds to establish an airway if needed in a neonate. And when we intubate, uh, there are a couple things that happen when we when we go to intubate. One is we underestimate the amount of time that it takes us to secure an airway. And we get very focused on the procedure and can lose sight of the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that uh, supraglottic airways work very well. We know that in the Cochrane Review in 2018 that looked at uh, resuscitation of over 800 infants, that supraglottic airways led to shorter resuscitation times, shorter ventilation times, and decreased need for intubation. So this is even the child, by putting a supraglottic airway in, you may be able to prevent them from needing to be intubated. Additionally, it is comparable in its efficacy to intubation, and you can avoid that procedure, which though we are very good at, is more challenging in this population. It sounds like two key concepts there are one is that you have less than 40 seconds to secure that airway of that sick neonate. And so your supraglottic airway really is your tool of choice. That being said, I understand that the sizes only go down to about 34 weeks. This was actually, I did a simulation with uh, Dr. White a few months back, and that was the mistake I made. Because after seeing your talk, Emily, I thought all I thought was uh, supraglottic out and I called for the LMA and Dr. White looked at me and said, um, Anton, there is no LMA that small. <laughs> there are caveats. It, it's never so simple as saying, oh, we'll just grab this tool and then everything will be fine. Premature infants under 34 weeks gestation, you don't have an LMA small enough to use. All right. So yeah, let's let's dig a little bit more into those caveats. So one of the caveats is that if they're premature, less than 34 weeks, you can't use a supraglottic airway. What, what are some of the other caveats and pitfalls that we should know about Dr. McNeil? We don't have a lot of evidence on giving drugs through the supraglottic airway. We don't have the data that we do with ET tubes as to the efficacy of delivering drugs through it. The chest compressions, whether or not you can do asynchronous chest compressions with a supraglottic airway is not as fully studied as well. Uh, Superglottic airways, like any airway, in an adult, when you put in airways, they're fairly static and secure, but that is not true with infants. Whether you're putting an ET tube in a premature infant or putting an SGA, superglottic airway into a small infant, small distances can make a huge difference. 
So if it's inserted too far, you can intubate the esophagus fully and distend it. You can accidentally bend the epiglottis over the laryngeal inlet, causing some airway obstruction. And the tip of the supraglottic airway can fold in on itself. So it is not so simple as I don't know, I don't need to know how to intubate a neonate because I can just use a supraglottic airway. You really have to think through what am I going to do if I'm not getting effective oxygenation and ventilation with this method. So that's a bit about your first choice. So for most of these babies, you are going to be reaching for uh, a supraglottic airway, but understanding that there's caveats there and some some pitfalls and that you you need to kind of practice getting those little supraglottic airways in. It's really, really important to emphasize that this is a huge area of progress that we've made in uh, neonatal airway management. And it should be the second thing you reach for after your mask. As long as your baby is more than 34 weeks, more than 1.5 kilograms. So we'll be using a supraglottic airway as our, as our go-to for most of these kitties. The tiny, tiny ones, uh, under 34 weeks, under one and a half kilograms, we will need to use an endotracheal tube. How first do we choose an endotracheal tube size, Dr. Fias? Yes. First of all, going into a lot of numbers, which is really difficult for an eMERGE doctor to remember in that stressful moment. What we have done, and I would suggest the same, that in the neonatal resuscitation warmer or any card that we use it most often, we put a card there so that those numbers are available and we have not to use our cognition to remember. But the way I remember it is remembering three numbers, less than one kg, one to two kgs, and more than 2 kgs. And the ET tube size would be 2.5, 3, and 3.5. And the depth of insertion will be, I will remember it as 7, 8, 9. So this is a kind of an easy way, but still card and having somewhere visible is important. There's a lot of confusion about what blade we use. So in term infant, we usually use number one Miller blade and in pre-termer, zero Miller. All right, we'll have that all on the show notes so that people can uh, can review that. Those numbers are are sometimes hard to remember. What about the age old controversy? I know in adults now we have a good answer that VL is probably generally better than DL, uh, but it used to be kind of a controversy that we hacked out um, many times on on the podcast for neonates. VL or DL? I'm aware that this still remains an area of some controversy, particularly when it comes to teaching the new learner how to do intubation. Do we teach them direct laryngoscopy? Do we rely on always having a video laryngoscope available to us? From my understanding and reading of the literature, the first pass attempt success rate is far greater using video laryngoscopy in neonatal intubation. And therefore, in my opinion, and I think that held by most of my colleagues who are neonatologists, it is wise to use a video laryngoscope first time and every time. That doesn't get away from the fact that there will be times, and there are places, that may not have a video laryngoscope available to them. And so I do think that neonatologists and physicians practicing regularly in newborn care should learn the technique of direct laryngoscopy. 
Let's talk a little bit about RSI medications. Now, sometimes we're not going to be using any RSI medications. First, Dr. White, when should we be using RSI medications uh, in the neonate? That's a great question, Anton. And I do think that outside of the resuscitation of an infant who is abtunded, whose heart rate is slow or dropping, uh, we should consider RSI as our go-to. The neonatal resuscitation algorithm recommends that we pre-medicate with atropine, that we then use fentanyl as a analgesic slash sedative, and we follow up with muscle relaxation using succinylcholine. There is no question that the first attempt pass rate for ETT is increased, enhanced by using RSI medications. So the scenario that you often find yourself in is one where you've done your initial resuscitation, you've got your stable heart rate, you've got a baby who continues to require positive pressure and or ventilation, and where in your estimate the baby is going to need surfactant therapy or longer-term ventilation. Scenario would be a baby who is not breathing effectively, has some apnea. And that's a situation which is all too common where we have to move from CPAP, non-invasive respiratory support, to invasive ventilation. That's the absolute scenario where we should be using RSI meds. And just to make it easy, I tend to think in terms of twos. So it's 0.02 milligrams per kilogram of atropine, two micrograms per kilogram of fentanyl, and two milligrams per kilogram of succinylcholine. I keep it simple. I think about my rule of twos. I love that. So the rule of twos with your RSI medications in the newborn, atropine, 0.02 milligrams per kilogram, fentanyl, two micrograms per kilogram, and succinylcholine, two milligrams per kilogram. Any other pitfalls or pearls when it comes to securing the airway of a neonate? I would add there's one that I frequently see and have done myself far too often, and that is right mainstem intubation. So you're so anxious to get the tube into the trachea that once you get it in, you push it down as far as it goes. And clearly, that's going to be fraught with problems. You know, the neonate doesn't have much room for wiggle or wiggle room because a half a centimeter this way or that way can mean a big difference to the outcome of that baby, i.e. surfactant going down into the right lung or potentially collapsing the whole left lung or potentially blowing a pneumo on the right side. I mean, you can think about all these morbidities that will occur as a result of a right mainstem intubation. So... We typically use the weight of the baby plus six centimeters will give you the the appropriate depth. I, I couldn't agree more because I, I, like you, I have done this more times than I care to recount. And as part of our airway checklist, after visualization of the tube going through the cords, the next step is pausing and checking to ensure that you didn't put it too far. It's just far too easy to happen. Excellent. So a very common pitfall, putting the ET tube way too far. Again, with that anxiety there, we bag too hard, bag too fast, put the ET tube down too far. So these are things we have to be very aware of in that tiny little baby. In box five, we've now got a baby with a heart rate of less than 60, which is our trigger to start chest compressions. Note that it's important to get 
adequate ventilations established before starting chest compressions. Again, ventilation is the first priority. And in this baby with a heart rate of less than 60, and we've thrown in an LMA, let's say, we've got some chest rise with ventilations. So now we need to start with chest compressions. Dr. Fiaz, what's recommended in terms of how to perform high-quality chest compressions in these tiny little babies? I would emphasize again, Anton, as you have said, that intubation is strongly recommended in newborn babies before starting the chest compression. Regarding the technique, the technique which is more preferable in newborn for chest compression is two-thumb encircling technique, which is over the one-third of the lower sternum to the depth of one-third of the chest diameter, as compared to the two-finger method. Because it has proven in the studies that if you are doing the two-thumb encircling method, it is providing more effective compression as compared to the two-finger method. The rate should be three to one, and that should be coordinated with the positive pressure ventilation. So the easy way to do that is one and two and three and breathe. Often we do a lot faster ventilation along with the chest compression. So we need to be very cognizant that we are doing an adequate ventilation to chest compression ratio. And it should be 120 per minute as compared to the older, which is 100 to 120. And then the duration. We should continue chest compression for 60 seconds before rechecking the heart rate. So these are the important components for the chest compression. That is two-thumb encircling technique. Rate should be threes to one. And you can make sure by doing it one and two and three and breathe should be at least 120 per minute. And then the rechecking of heart rate should be 60 seconds after. The few neonatal resuscitations that I've been involved in, uh, there is prime real estate at the chest. And I've seen people try and do chest compressions from the baby's legs. And I've seen, I've seen providers do chest compressions from the baby's head. Um, which one's better? Or what should we be doing? The better method in the recent recommendation is to stand on the head end of the baby because it will allow you more access and it will be better and you can keep an eye on the chest rise more better as compared to the leg end of the baby. That may be difficult, however, if you are at the same time trying to intubate that baby, which is partly why NRP now recommends intubate prior to chest compressions. But in practical terms, if your baby's heart rate is 40 and you don't have a lot of experts around to do that intubation, assuming that you cannot use a superlotic airway, you know, you may actually be getting in the way of the intubator. And so I think we need to be cognizant of what's practical depending on the setting. Yeah, very important point. It's effective to do chest compression using the two-thumb technique Again, from the base of the baby or the feet of the baby as opposed to the head of the baby. The idea of moving to the head, as well as what Jabin has already outlined, is to give you access then to the umbilical vein so that you can put in a resus line and provide some epinephrine for the baby should it be required. Yeah, that segues perfectly into our next step, which is in box five, which is consideration for an umbilical vein catheter. Personally, I've inserted a total of zero times in my almost 20-year career. 
On the other hand, I've got a bit of experience with IOs. So let's talk a little bit about uh, venous access in practical terms. So for the baby whose heart rate is less than 60, we need to start thinking about fluids and maybe epinephrine. Dr. McNeil, what are the best options for venous access in the neonate for the doc who doesn't have much experience with umbilical vein catheters? This is a great question and one that I have encountered frequently in doing some procedures courses. And there are two groups of people that you end up educating, people who are very nervous about this idea, who are usually those who have experience and those who feel have some overconfidence about their capacity to provide IV access um, who tend to be a little bit younger. And the idea that you can rely on an IO whenever you can't get uh, central or peripheral access can be dangerous. IOs are fantastic. They can be used in term neonates. And I highly recommend practicing at a procedures, at any of the numerous procedures courses that are available. IOs are different beasts in a brand new baby than they are in an 80 kilo gentleman who's had a cardiac arrest. The cortex of the bone is very thin and small. The IO does not anchor. So what is a good IO now is infiltrated and no longer useful in about 20 seconds, especially with a movement that happens in a neonatal resuscitation. So my feeling about the IO is that, yes, it is good for a term infant or an infant greater than three kilos. You still need to practice it because it's a different procedure than it is in, in an adult or even an older child. And once placed, you have to take excellent care to ensure that it does not move because you do not have a lot of osteocortex to to anchor it. One of the key things that needs to happen is that the needle has to be against the bone before the drill is turned on. Otherwise, the needle will slip over the edges of the bone. The bone is not as flat. You don't have a plateau like you do in an adult. Um, It is very easy to go through the entire bone. You really are only going in a centimeter at most. So it is useful. You should practice it, but you should also know that it is fraught with a lot of potential problems, is not very frequently a stable line. The flip side of that is placing an umbilical vein line when you don't have very much experience doing that, or it's been a long time since you've had experience doing that. Again, I recommend procedures courses to remind yourself of the muscle memory. It can seem very simple to put an umbilical venous line because the the vein is right there and you can see it, but you also have to be very familiar with the anatomy and potential pitfalls of placing the catheter. So the, the bottom line is you have options. All of them are challenging for an emergency medicine provider, but the onus is on us to practice these procedures to make sure that if and when this event happens, we at least have some muscle memory as to how to do these procedures. Okay. I think practically speaking, I know where I work, it won't be me doing the umbilical vein catheter, but there are people, other people in the hospital who are experts at that. And it's usually a little bit ways down the algorithm and hopefully we'll have that help there. If you do work in a place where you don't have access to help, then I think the onus is on you to really learn how to do this uh, at a course properly. All right. Getting now onto box number six, despite chest compressions and coordinated positive pressure ventilation with 100% oxygen, we've still got a heart rate below 60. So thankfully, this doesn't happen very often. But Dr. White, what are the next steps? Your next step is you go to drug, which is your epinephrine 
And while we we do know that NRP teaches us that we can use our advanced airway or endotracheal tube, having intubated the baby, as a methodology for administering epinephrine, you need, first of all, 10 times the dose. And second of all, it's generally not very effective. And so we are really pushing for an early venous access. And of course, very easy for me to say, because I've probably instrumented hundreds of umbilical veins in my in my career. But it, it is technically very easy to do. And so when you cut off the cord, I would advise that you throw an umbilical tape around the stump so that you do have a way of easily stopping the flow, should there be a spurter. But the umbilical arteries generally go into spasm, and you get a bit of a ooze from the vein, which immediately identifies the hole into which you want to put your catheter, which is already primed with saline. And inserting that catheter four centimeters at max for a prem, five centimeters for a term infant, is an ideal resus line. You've got a central venous catheter, you can deliver your drug, and you can deliver your initially your saline if that indeed is perceived to be a problem. I may add very few newborns are hypovolemic. There are very few exceptions to this. Even the baby born with anemia tends to be isovolemic and, and chronically anemic. Most antepartum hemorrhages are actually associated with maternal blood loss, not fetal blood loss. And so the need for resuscitation is really still around appropriate ventilation and oxygenation rather than being concerned or worried about the need to deliver more volume. So our epinephrine is our go-to drug. And uh, we tend to have, again, a range of 0.01 to 0.03 mils per kilogram of our 1 in 10,000 solution. I would, again, use my rule of twos. And so uh, 0.02 mils per kilo. No question, epi is a very important adjunct to the baby who who requires a lot of resuscitation. And they're oftentimes term babies, actually, who've been born with asphyxia, where there's also myocardial asphyxial damage. And those babies will need an ongoing epinephrine for support. This brings us to fluid management. Now, most of these newborns are not fluid depleted and will not require any fluid. But the algorithm does say that when the heart rate is persistently below 60, that's when you should initiate fluid management. What kind of volumes are we talking about exactly when we give fluid boluses to these these tiny babies, Dr. Fias? Normal saline is still our get-to-go fluid. But rather than starting with 20 mL per kg, should always go from 5 till 10 mL per kg. And then you can reassess the baby and then repeat 10 mL per kg bolus if needed. But I would say when you are at the second bolus, always start thinking about inotropes. If hypovolemia is still a question, which is a very rare occurrence in the newborn babies. The other fluid which I want to emphasize here is your dextrose, which we often forget in the newborn babies. Do not wait for the lab results to come for a glucose. Check the point of care glucose. And if the neonate is hypoglycemic, then consider giving dextrose D10 early even before the normal saline boluses. Hence the goals of warm, pink, and sweet. So this is where the sweet comes in. Okay, so we're talking DW10. We try and get this in within 30 minutes of the birth, again, to avoid hypoglycemia. 
so I think it might be good to remind our physician colleagues that in the newborn, hypoglycemia is indeed a common challenge. And the dose is two mils per kilogram of D10W followed by a continuous glucose infusion of D10W. So we've got this terrible situation with the baby who we've done all the right things. We've intubated the baby. We're doing chest compressions. We've still got, let's say, a heart rate less than 60. What are some of the other diagnoses that you're thinking of that are immediately reversible in the emergency department besides respiratory failure? Well, actually, Anton, this is where my other mnemonic comes in, borrowed from PALS, but very relevant in NRP as well, which is my DOPE algorithm. So, yes, I've given my epi, my first bolus of epi, and standard practice, I'm going to wait three to five minutes before I repeat that dose of epinephrine, and I need to be checking other things. So, DOPE, as I'm sure my colleagues will remember, refers to the D for displacement. So, we may think we put that endotracheal tube into the trachea, but we've all experienced this where... We put it in, but as we pull the stylet out and we tape the ATT, we end up with it in the esophagus. So we've all seen too many esophageal intubations. And of course, your heart rate is not going to improve. Your saturations are not going to improve. So dope displacement is number one. Obstruction, another one, because sometimes these are babies with either blood or meconium in their airway. And so we clearly need to make sure that our ETT is patent. P, for pneumothorax or Ehrlich syndrome, unfortunately all too common because generally they are indeed iatrogenic. We've either intubated the right main bronchus and blown the right lung, or we've been using pressures that are too high, resulting in a pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum, pneumoperitoneum, and the worst case scenario, a, a pneumopericardium. So P for pneumothorax or rather Ehrlich syndromes needs to be considered. And finally, E for equipment. And again, we've seen this. I've experienced the situation where I think I'm using 100% oxygen only to find that nobody turned it on. So I'm really resuscitating in room air still. So going through that dope algorithm quickly in your head and using your resources to check these things is really helpful and oftentimes will save the day. Because again, if you've got a tension pneumothorax, any amount of epinephrine is not going to help you. So now we've gone through our algorithm, and congratulations, everybody. We've saved the baby's life. Woohoo! But we're not done yet. We need to consider the goals of resuscitation and post-resuscitation care. So, Dr. White, what are some of the goals of resuscitation or targets that we should try to hit before the kitty gets whisked off to the PICU? So there, there's temperature, there's pH. What are some of the more important ones? Right. Well, again, just to emphasize that our saturation goals for new babies are indeed 90 to 95% and an FiO2 and ventilation that's going to achieve that. Secondly, our target pH is in the 735 to 745 range. No question, though, that we've become a little bit more permissive on our pH lower limit and so generally speaking, you're going to hear a neonatologist advise that as long as you can keep the pH greater than 7.25 with a CO2 in the range of 45 to 55, we're happy. 
it's really important to recognize that bearer trauma, volume trauma, adolescent trauma lead to chronic lung disease and lung injury in the new baby. And so for ventilated newborns, we've become a little bit more permissive on the uh, on the ventilation to avoid using really high pressures. And of course, our go-to nowadays is volume guarantee, or volume-targeted ventilation. That is different from volume control, I might add. And finally, blood pressure. We've become well aware that numerical hypotension is very common. What do I mean by that? I mean the numbers look low. And generally in neonatal care, we aim at a mean arterial pressure equivalent to the baby's gestational age. But beware, that's the fifth percentile. That's our minimum blood pressure target, not our optimal blood pressure target. So we've become much more aware that numerical hypotension, while common, does not require a knee-jerk response. Much more relevant is the baby's pH, reflection of the level of tissue oxygenation, of course, in terms of measuring the pH, and the lactate, which has become a real adjunct to the care of the newborn. And so our targets clearly are in terms of saturations 90 to 95%, CO2s in the 45 to 55 range, pH is 725 to 745. We're being really broadening that range generously. And of course, our sugars in the four to six range, and particularly in the first 72 hours of life. That's the time when our prematurely born babies are most at risk of morbidity. All right. So those are some of the important targets of resuscitation in in the post-resuscitative phase. Uh, What about temperature? So what you had mentioned this uh, at the top of the podcast, but I think it's worth reiterating because, again, one of the key main take-home points here is that you need to keep babies warm. So could you just reiterate for us exactly what the temperature goals are? So the accelerated temperature goal is 36.5 to 37.5. We've moved away from using rectal temperatures routinely, except in the newly born baby who is undergoing therapeutic hypothermia, which is a different story altogether. Another mnemonic that you will all be familiar with is STABLE, and that helps me to remember the things that I should pay attention to. S is our sugar, T, temperature, A, airway B, breathing, L for our laboratory adjuncts, which we've mentioned, importantly, our gas and lactate, and oftentimes uh, CBC looking at hemoglobin and platelet count, and then E, our evaluation and emotional support of the family. Important not to forget, absolutely. So now we're at the point of we're thinking about the post-resuscitation care and our targets. Hopefully by this point, we're ready to transport the patient to the pediatric ICU or the neonatal ICU. Dr. White, you've had an incredible amount of experience accepting patients from all over the place in this kind of scenario. What's on your checklist of things that you wish or want done before the patient is transferred? You know, when they arrive, what are the things that need to be done? And uh, what are the most common pitfalls there in terms of when, you're, when the babies arrive? 
if you had another hour or two, I would be able to (laughs) answer that question appropriately. But let me just say that one of the things we do see in transport medicine is that once resuscitation has been achieved, there's a tendency to assume that all the things that you you have done will just stay in place. We still need to focus on having our ABCs taken care of. Now, here's a common pitfall. That resuscitation UV line that you've just placed at four centimeters, by the time you've finished pushing in your glucose, your epinephrine, and your IV dextrose is running for an hour or so, and you're ready to move the baby, may very well have slipped out to two centimeters. Bear in mind, it's sitting in the umbilical vein. So you do one of two things. You establish a peripheral IV, or you put in an appropriately placed umbilical venous catheter. But there really is no, preferably, little room, I wouldn't say no room, but little room for using a resuscitation catheter as your permanent venous access during the transport. That would be a common scenario where we see both the line slipping out and the baby oozing or losing a significant amount of blood. So this is something that we really need to pay attention to. D, E, F, and G, don't ever forget glucose. And so we need to remember that checking these babies post-resuscitation for sugars that are too low or too high, which is, again, a common problem, will require some manipulation of the IV therapy. And then finally, safety in transport is key. So Another common problem is to see these babies stuffed into a transport isolate, but not secured. Ambulances, particularly if they are trying to get baby and team back to the tertiary center as quickly as possible, are often stopping and starting and stopping and swaying. And it's quite a rocky road in the back of that ambulance, particularly if they're using lights and sirens. So please make sure that your baby is secured. Another thing I I should emphasize is that these babies have been monitored, as we've spoken to about uh, during resuscitation, but it's really important to continue that monitoring throughout the stabilization and transport of the baby. So we need to be monitoring all vital signs and not to forget glucose. But recognizing, too, that this baby who's just been resuscitated is very much part of a family and making certain to at least offer the family for a parent or extended family member to come with the team. And it's at least something we should get into the habit of doing each and every time. Recognize the importance of family in this baby's life and doing your best to keep a parent and baby together at all times. Those are some great uh, transport pearls and pitfalls there. Very nicely summarized. So I'm going to ask everyone a last question here, and that is, If there's one single thing that you'd like to impart to the listeners out there who may not have a lot of experience uh, with newborn resuscitation, if there's one thing for them to remember, what would that one thing be? Wearing my neonatologist's hat and my transport medical director hat, I would say simply phone a friend. And that, in fact, is a very rewarding experience, I believe, for both the unfortunate eMERGE doc who's found him, his or herself dealing with a neonatal resuscitation, as well as the staff neonatologist who's on the line. And this would be a relatively common occurrence 
where we can stay on the line and help you through that resuscitation. I would add that I think a picture is worth a thousand words. So even having a little video clip that you can provide for me with parental permission really helps me to know whether or not that mask is appropriately fitting or whether the baby is actually doing a lot better than you imagine. So one thing which I would emphasize from the Moosh's perspective is preparation. That's assembling the team, knowing the roles, having a person to document, time the resuscitation, and then asking for help at appropriate time. I would say that the realm of neonatal resuscitation is not a static one, and it is incumbent upon us to to continue to learn and read about this, because what we did five years ago, even what we did four years ago, is not what we were doing today. And we are getting better and doing less invasive things, and that's wonderful, and so we all need to keep up with that. And I would add on, Emily, that including it more and more into your simulation education is very valuable in getting your skills updated. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. White, Dr. Fayaz, Dr. McNeil. That was an incredible learning experience for me. As soon as we're done this, I'm going to sign up for a neonatology course. And we're actually doing some neonatal recess at the EM Cases course All of us general emergency physicians uh, need as much practice as possible with the newborn resuscitation. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.